everybody. Uh, before we uh, sort of get into it, uh, just to overview some things, welcome to episode two of Cultivation Corner. Pleasure to be joined with uh, Joe Veldin of uh, Seven, everybody. Seven Leaf Genetics, and also uh, he's got an outfit out in Oregon. Uh, he's quite the, uh, the globetrotter. Uh, so excited to uh, dig into all of uh, his ventures and what he's up to. Um, and for those who have joined us for episode one, uh, you may be familiar, we've got a question and answer uh, sort of towards the end. Uh, we go for about an hour around there and open it up. Uh, we've got Jenny, VGA staff, co-founder and, uh, and director of operations, and she'll be helping to sort of moderate everybody and welcome everybody. And if you guys have any questions, she'll be there and we'll be responding as well as we kind of chat. Uh, and uh, so those who may not know, <laughs> Uh, Joe is a, a definitely a familiar face in, I want to say, the Vermont cannabis community and uh, maybe even outside of the Vermont cannabis community. Uh, the first time I sort of ran to him was at uh, the Neckhand Festival or the conference, uh, which uh, unfortunately we didn't have this year, but uh, I look forward to uh, having more of those. Those are always a blast. There's great speakers. There's great events. And Joe was one of those uh, speakers. And uh, And for those who may not know, he's got a great little... Uh, hemp uh, seed uh, outfit in uh, Vermont called Seven Leaf Genetics. He's out in uh, North Hyde Park. And uh, I'll let him uh, take it from there to introduce himself before we get into it for the evening. So thanks again, Joe. And uh, how are you doing? Great. Welcome, everybody. Good evening. Um, yeah, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Joe Veldon. Um, and I do, um, I, I grow cannabis and I really, really enjoy it. Um, in 2012, um, I got hired, uh, by a friend of mine that started a cannabis incubator out in, um, outside of, uh, Portland, Oregon. Um, and he hired me to come out there and help, uh, teach the, the people of his incubator, um, how to breed. Um, unfortunately when I got out there, <clears throat> they were pretty inexperienced and had trouble, uh, scaling up. So that was my first kind of, um, introduction into uh, consulting and trying to explain how to do things and how to grow things um, the proper way. Um, they had indoor, they had network, or they had indoor space, they had greenhouses, and they had uh, open land. Um, unfortunately, you know, I spent about two and a half years flying back and forth between Vermont and there. Um, unfortunately, we never got it to the point where they did much breeding. Um, they were a little uh, scattershot and again had trouble scaling up. Um, but I did take the opportunity to uh, expand my knowledge, my network, um, and, and you know perfect my breeding skills. Um, I also met a lot of key hemp growers out there. Um, <clears throat> and in 2016, the incubator kind of imploded, um, and my wife and I partnered up with um, our partner with Lion Reproductions. Um, his name's Charles. He's a wonderful grower. Um, he lives on site and we started a boutique rec grow um, where we cultivate organic cannabis of medically significant strains. Um, we took, um, that's on the THC side of things. And that was, that's a wonderful little operation that we have. Um, on the hemp side of things in 2016, we also started um, a hemp seed company. Um, I took the, the, the strains that I had gotten um, and the seeds that I'd gotten from uh, my friends out in Oregon where the hemp industry was much more advanced um, and mature. 
I spent a couple of years making making my hybrids of them. Then in 2016, we started selling to the general public, um, or 2017, excuse me. Um, so this will be our fourth year selling uh, to the general public. Um, about that time, too, was when Vermont, um, their, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> their um, pilot program for hemp started it was in 2016. And that's when we started taking on our first uh, consulting clients, uh, new farmers that were trying to understand the intricacies and the nuance of growing hemp um, in this market. Um, four years later, we have um, farms big and small in about six states up and down the East Coast. Um, and I've also started applying my consulting experience or my experience to consulting with a couple indoor grows. Um, with the advent of 164, um, that's becoming more and more popular. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at. We make feminized hemp seed here on the East Coast um, that we sell to hemp farmers all over the country. Um, and we have a boutique recreational grow out on the West Coast that we grow medically significant um, high grade cannabis for their recreational market out there. Um, yeah, that's my, that's my background. It's like Jen's jumping into the chat, but uh, just for those listening, um, where can people find you uh, online and on Instagram and elsewhere? Uh, if they want so to we look? are, um, our website is sevenleafgenetics.com. Um, and we are at uh, sevenleaf underscore genetics, the number seven on leaf underscore genetics on Instagram and Twitter. It's important for us to uh, give, you know, the business recognition, make sure everyone is aware of how to reach you guys. Uh, yeah, I, it, it's funny because I always forget to mention that. And it's the worst thing I can do because we are a breeder direct hemp seed company. Um, we don't we don't sell our seeds to brokers or anything like that. If if you want to grow our genetics, you need to contact us and we'll, and we'll set you up. Um, so thank you. Cause I, I always end up forgetting to do that. Absolutely. So who, who is your uh, clientele? Just to unpack this for a moment, who does seven leaf uh, genetics out of Vermont typically do business with large farms, small farms, people in Vermont, maybe some names that people know uh, just so, you know, if someone was curious about uh, reaching out to you guys. Right. Um, I, I think probably our, our wheelhouse farmer uh, for the hemp industry is a farmer that grows between 10 and 30 acres, maybe 40 acres. Um, we have a couple big, I work, I do consulting for a couple big uh, tobacco farms down in Southern Mass in Connecticut. And there are several hundred acres, but I would say our wheelhouse is the, is the craft cannabis grower um, that's doing about 10, 20, maybe 30 acres. Um, our genetics are all based for the, uh, for the cut flower market. Um, we don't, we don't breed genetics for, uh, for the biomass market. Um, our, all our genetics have a unique terpene profile, um, and have just a wonderful, uh, yeah, wonderful fragrance. Now, just to, you know, maybe stay on hemp for a second. Um, I'm curious, is, is, is that, is that, you know, regional. Um, so the things that you breed are they for a specific area, for a specific climate, for a specific environment? Or yeah, or? I would say, I would say regional. Um, all the genetics that we have for sale right now, we will do wonderfully in New England. Um, probably as far south as uh, you know, northern Jersey, northern Pennsylvania. Um, they probably do really well, or they they do really well out of the Pacific Northwest. Um, once you start getting down into the mid-Atlantic, you know, southern Jersey, Maryland and all that, things start to change a little bit. And you're going to want something that's a little more heat tolerant, a little more drought tolerant, stuff like that. Um, and then as you go further, you know, I'm just starting to play with genetics for 
um, as we were talking about earlier, we're about to pick up a client in Texas and their, their grow environment is completely different. So the, what I would breed for for them is completely different for what I'm you know, breeding for here in the New England. Gotcha, gotcha. That makes sense. Thanks for unpacking that. Um, so, <clears throat> you, uh, do you breed in the high THC in the in the cannabis space as well? Um, let's go into that a little bit. You mentioned um, having an outfit out in uh, Oregon. Uh, is okay. that the rec space? Is that the medical space? And um, so we. We were we were originally a medical girl out there, um, and we were grandfathered in. The space that we have, we're in we're in the city of Portland, so we're, uh, we're it's a it's a small space, and every inch is is um, taken up. So we can't do much breeding out there. <clears throat> Excuse me, um, but what I can do is breed, create seeds, and send them out there. We can enter them into the metric system, which is the cannabis. Um, you know, the, the tracking system out there uh, and do it that way. I have not gotten into, I haven't, check that. I haven't released any um, THC seeds uh, into the into the general public um, on the THC side of the things. Um, I am working on a strain that as, um, as Vermont becomes legal, um, provided everything goes the way I anticipate, will be, I'll be releasing that. Interesting. So uh, it sounds like, you know, and I don't want to get, you know, too much into it, but it sounds like you maybe have been, uh, you've got some things sort of behind uh, closed doors or some personal projects going on for. for I do. And it, it's, you know, one of the things that uh, people don't understand about breeding is to, you know, to, to really develop a strain and then to stabilize it where you can, um, you know, be pretty confident that you're going to get, you know, essentially the same plant every time, you know, with every seed. That's a, that's a year, 18 month endeavor. That's not something that you're just going to do for in a couple months and, you know, whoop, they look, I made an F2 and have fun with it. Um, you know, the difference between THC and hemp is, you know, hemp's grown as, a, as an agricultural crop. So when you sell hemp seeds, you know, we sell, you know, a thousand seeds an acre. So if you sell a farmer 10,000 seeds, they're going to essentially want 10,000 plants that look pretty much the same, that aren't going to deviate. When you sell THC, you sell a few seeds, you know, a dozen, a big grow, call it, you know, 80, you know, 80 plants. That's 80 seeds. The variation is much more tolerable in a THC seed than it is in a hemp seed. So I take my hemp breeding technique and I won't release anything that's essentially not, you know, an F4. I want to make sure that everything that, that you get from me is pretty stable. So it doesn't, you know, you can go ahead and make a new hybrid in you know six months, five months if you want. Um, you know you can do that, but to sell that to the general public and to make sure that the general public is going to be happy with what you're selling them and you're selling them something that is you know relatively consistent, um, it, it just doesn't work that way. It, it takes time. So you say that that's interesting. Um, you know, uh, as, as we're aware, uh, and I'm sure those that are listening. The, the 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 high THC uh, the cannabis seed game uh, is pretty big. It's 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 pretty wide. It's it's expanding in in this country month by month. There are lots of seed breeders now. Um, you know, you, you see seeds that are made pretty quickly, and then you see people that don't release until every other year. So there is a significant difference there. Uh, is that what I'm hearing from maybe something that was made you know um, just from one round? 
of of breeding versus something that takes longer. Yes, absolutely. Some of that takes longer. It's um, you want to make sure that not that there's anything um, necessarily wrong with that. You know, if you're selling a twelve pack of seeds and you can expect some variation, you know, if you get an F2 or F3, it's much different than a farmer who's relying on that crop to be uniform. So the, the, um, the, the ability or not the ability, but the, the differentiation between, um, you know, a very strict crop and one that has you know, different phenotypes is much more lenient when it comes to THC. Um, what I'd like to see is a lot of these, these, in my experience, what I've seen is the THC breeders, they're all fighting each other. They're all, I've got the best this, I got the best cookie runs and the what, what, the what's. Right. That's what I was referring to. These sort of, right, these trends that you see. Uh, you right. Know. Yep. It, to my mind, it sounds to me like most of them are trying to find two cool names that they can add together and make it sound good. Right, they're not paying attention to what the actual cannabinoid profile is. They're not paying attention to what the terpene profile is. Right, so the THC strain that I'm that I'm working on that I'm going to release, I'm trying to match the the terpene and theol profiles of two plants so that I can get something that's absolutely unique. I'm looking at soil structure. You know, as a, as a hemp breeder, you know that the first strain that we released with 12 foot plants they were huge i mean you got two and a half pounds off each one but you had a hard time staking them keeping them up in the wind and harvesting them right so now we go to a much smaller it still gives you that pound and a half two pounds of plant but it's a four and a half five foot tall plant that's you know eight feet around so the the breeding you know we have specific criteria that we look for when we try and start mixing plants it's not a the naming is a lot of fun and we have a lot of fun with it, but it's not, um, it's not, not what dictates our breeding strategy. Hmm. Hmm. Now you mentioned a moment ago, um, uh, grandfathered in, in Oregon, uh, yeah. and maybe to try, try to eventually bring it back to what just happened in Vermont. Uh, we just passed a, a bill and I know we wanted to touch upon that. Um, yeah. but just so people are, you know, if people are curious, what, what happened in Oregon? Uh, you guys got grandfathered in. Can you unpack so, that? Sure. Essentially, what happened was the um, in 2012, um, Oregon opened up their medical program. The way the program worked was you were allowed to have, I think it was eight patients, and you could grow, it was like a dozen plants per patient. So you would grow eight patients times 12 is what, 84 plants, 96 plants, something like that. You would grow those plants out. You'd sell each of those age patients, you know, a pound of weed for a couple hundred bucks, and you'd end up with another, you know, 40 pounds. The way that the system worked was you would then take the, that 40 pounds, that excess, enter it, um, and go sell it to a dispensary. And all the medical dispensaries, you know, you'd develop a relationship with a dispensary and you could sell your excess cannabis to them. In 2016, the state of Oregon um, did exactly what they said they were not going to do. Um, and they combine the two markets. They combine the medical market and this newly established recreational market. And they forced all of the medical growers um, to participate in the rec grow, in the rec market. 
And the rec market, it is much more onerous. It's a lot more regulations. It's, a, it's just a lot more of everything. Um, so that's, uh, they kind of forced everybody to go into the rec market now. So there, there were companies more than, for instance, in Vermont, you know, people are used to just write three, four, five big companies, right? And not uh, that large of a market. There's just, you know, a handful of actors. Sounds like in Oregon, it wasn't like that. There was more of a decentralized market. I, I would say on a per capita basis, it was probably pretty even. You know, we have we have our three dispensaries or our four dispensaries. You know, um, the, the city of Portland is the size of Vermont. So, you know, I would say that it was it was pretty it was pretty even. Um, I would say the system that they set up was a lot more um, loose. Uh, when things became in the rec market, um, a lot of things that the the government didn't anticipate happened, and it really delayed and just made the rollout of the rec market just that much more um, problematic for everybody. Hmm. <clears throat> Now, Oregon used their uh, Liquor Control Commission, right? Is that true? They do, uh, they do. yeah, the OLCC, absolutely. So pre-existing agency, uh, whereas in Vermont, right, we're setting up a new one, basically. We, we are, um, yeah, what, 164, S54, whatever, the, yeah, 164, that was the rollout. It's, um, it, it's just a disappointment. Um, you know, we really had an opportunity to kind of set up a market, you know, in a really good way. And... We just kind of followed the wrong, um, the wrong path. Um, I think that we're going to run into a lot of the same, um, a lot of similar issues that we did out west, or you know, that the West Coast has experienced. Um, you know, people don't realize uh, in this industry, this industry is, you know, it, it faces the same business pressures or industry pressures as any other industry. You know, there's the there's sales and customer service and supply chain and all these other things that you have to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And we're not, you know, we were talking about just the other night when, when we were doing our pre-interview there, we were talking about the, the cultivators getting a six month head start. And that is, and I'm mistaken there, Jeff, that, that is not anywhere that to be found. Mm. So, you know, how do you open a dispensary in March of 2022 but don't allow them to grow cannabis before then. You know, it just makes no sense. You're going to run into the same exact issues that we've already run into out west, and that's well, just. Let, let me add, there is a provision, Joe, just to be clear, um, for some in Vermont for the medical dispensaries to immediately uh, transfer stock into uh, for adult sales. Right. So I, I'm talking about when when everybody gets to play. And gotcha. And I was really upset about the whole, I actually tested, she testified against um, this whole year and a half or two year head start that the, the med dispensaries got. Um, it, it's antithetical to the way that we should be doing things in my mind. And in, in retrospect, when things roll out, if they do give the cannabis growers, the cultivators that six month head start, then by my calculation, we're 10 months out before we can, before any um, cannabis, you know, cultivator can start growing their crop. Mm. <clears throat> so, you know, I, I'm consulting for a pretty big indoor grow that they'll be lucky if they're up and running in 10 months. Now, do you think that grow would be willing to be uh, 
basically, uh, you know, what in the beer industry in the 90s, they called uh, a contract uh, brewer, right? Which was you, you basically had a relationship where you had to retail through uh, a larger outfit. And S54 or Act 164 does something similar, right? During that period of initial rollout, sure. themselves can't directly sell, but they have to only wholesale to the dispensaries. Do you think that maybe those you work with or even yourself, is that something that would be, you know, of interest or is that? I, I, I'm pretty protective of my reputation and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want any um, cannabis that I cultivated to currently be sold at any of the three medical dispensaries that are that are out there, um, and I think that there will be a lot of growers that that, that are in the same boat. Um, so uh, the, to my mind, one of the bigger one of the biggest issues is exactly what you're talking about. Is you know what makes Vermont great is that we have this wonderful reputation of because we have an, an enormous amount or an inordinate amount of wonderful cannabis growers. We grow some killer wheat. And <clears throat> the diversity, the, the, the way that each of us do it um, and you know, do it our own special way, that's what makes it special. When you start um, doing these contract grows, um, you start going the way of Colorado, right? And these contract growers, they're gonna want certain profiles, they're gonna want certain cannabinoid cook, content they're going to want all these other things whereas you know in our experience when you know two years ago when when oregon had a million pounds of extra cannabis floating around we still couldn't we still sold every gram of a cannabis that we grew why because we still grew medically significant strains so it's not just so much of what you're growing it, it's how you're growing it too so i think that as these contract grows go, they're gonna to go towards the bigger grows and they're gonna to wanna to try and, <clears throat> and we should all go towards, you know, creating cannabis as, as efficiently as possible. But I think that um, when you start doing that, it, it allows the, the dispensaries to kind of dictate to the growers how and how they should do that. Um, and I think that that just sets up for problems. Is there anything that, so you're, you're unique. I, I like this because you have familiarity, it seems like, with multiple states and their regulatory systems. Is there anything in Oregon that you feel Vermont could benefit from in terms of its adult use market, um, mm -hmm. policy-wise, uh, either licensing or even at the consumer? Well, so what jumps to mind is taxes. Mm -hmm. uh, the way that it works in Oregon is um, at, at Lion Root Productions. When we sell um, and we distribute to one person, so our, uh, we sell to one person, they distribute it throughout, you know, they have 16 locations throughout the state. So we only have to deal with one person, which I'll get into in a second. But when you, um, <clears throat> the, I'm sorry, what was the question again? I just lost my train of thought. Oh, I was just, no problem. I was just asking, is there anything you seem to be uh, familiar with multiple? Oh, right. Thank yeah, you. For, yeah. So, so taxes. Yep. So when we, when we make a sale to the dispensary, right, we sell, you know, all, all of our cannabis to them. The taxes that we need to pay to the state, to the OLCC, are built into that so that the state only collects taxes from one entity, the dispensary, 
but everybody that deals in the dispensary because they're the end the end you know seller that it just simplifies it for the state and it simplifies it for all these small growers because one of the things and this gets back into um you know this industry being similar to all the other ones mm-hmm. one of the biggest problems out in oregon is you know and this is and we will run into this in vermont is you know some of the best growers I know are some of the biggest weirdos and introverts that I know. Like they're really good at what they do because they don't do much else. And when in Oregon, you need to sell your own cannabis. So if you're gonna go out and grow the world's greatest crop, but you're afraid to go out into public or you're, you don't think it's good or you know whatever your hangup is, and you don't sell it, then it doesn't make it to the market and then you don't make any profit. So one of the things that, you know, the one of the things that I like about this organization and other ones like it are, you know, I've, I've been talking with a bunch of people about it, a co-op isn't the right term, but something where the farmer that doesn't need to be the salesman, because that's a big hiccup in the industry where some of the best growers aren't getting their their product to market and they're failing just because they're a bad salesman, not because their product's bad. You know, their product is and a lot of times superior. They just don't, you know, it's incumbent upon them to go do the sale. And that's the hangout for a lot of people. So I'd really like to see some sort of, and, you know, and we can play around with different ideas, but some sort of clearing house or, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be state run, but something that you know, where you can gray cannabis and know that if I'm a small time grower, which if Vermont really should be is a collection of small growers, if you could get that small grower to know that, you know, if he can bring his cannabis to a, um, a clearing house, if you will, and his numbers are right and his pesticides are right and everything, you know, is, is doing okay, then he knows he can get X amount of dollars per pound for his cannabis, then he can start doing some business planning. Because again, this business is just like any other business. It's harvest time. We sold a we sold a crop out west last year, last month, six weeks ago. I think it was fifteen hundred, sixteen hundred dollars a pound. Um, you know, we're gonna we just dropped a crop this week. It'll be ready in three weeks. It'll probably get closer to two thousand a pound. In the summertime, that'll be up to 22, 2300 a pound. So there's seasonal fluctuations that you need to pay attention to, just like any other business. Mm-hmm. And if you're not paying attention to them, you're, you know, those things are going to fail. So having some sort of clearinghouse or some sort of thing where the dispensaries aren't dictating what they're going to pay, what kind of cannabis they want, how it's supposed to be grown, if they're not dictating that, and this is then it's a much better much better deal for the farmer and that's what i'm looking out for or that's what i'm interested in looking out for so that that's really interesting so let me contrast that with the notion of um you know in vermont uh the cottage industry concept right so the cottage industry concept in vermont let's speak about agriculture for a second um act 250 you know if you produce something agriculturally on your property that you know, over 51%, you can sell it yourself. So maple syrup, we even have um, hops or some some grains, uh, 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 cultivators or farmers that are, yep. you know, uh, the dis- the growing and then brewing it. And, and it's basically, you know, direct uh, direct farm sale. Um, 
So just to contrast that, um, you know, could Vermont use both of those? Is are, are there advantages to that? Um, what do you think? And and do you see that in Oregon at all? That sort of you, you don't see it. The the disconnect is is that it's still federally illegal. So mm -hmm. a lot of those you know direct farm to sale um, uh, interactions are just not um, they're not allowed right now. You know you can't take a THC um, product and sell it at a farm stand. Now there was a lot of talk about trying to do that with hemp. And I think that that's a really good. I think it's a good idea. Um, I, I guess what could, to my mind, it sounds like a really good idea. What concerns me is the, um, how are you gonna prove that, that it is what it is, right? So if you're gonna sell um, some tomatoes or some lettuce or something like that, it's just a vegetable and you eat it and all that. When you sell cannabis, there's a terpene profile and there's a cannabinoid profile. And there's, it just gets much more complicated. And I don't know how you would go about, like, would you staple your certificate of analysis that gives you, you know, hey, we're legit. And you put your little bags there. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure how that would work. I haven't put a whole lot of thought into it. I, I like the idea to my mind that more that we can get the farmer to directly interact with the customer is a, is it better? It gets rid of the middleman, and you know that the farmer is the only one I know that pays retail for for what they do, and then sells it wholesale. Like it's backwards. So I'm looking to I'm looking out for the farmer, and you know we're we just passed recreational cannabis in the state, and the wave is here. And if we're not smart, these small craft growers that that build that are the staple of the, the Vermont's cannabis reputation, they're all going to get squashed. Yeah, and not not just uh, market access, but uh, you know price control as well. We can't have um, you know one sided uh, um, one side of the the market um, simply having access to retail. Um, especially well, and it, it's what and it, what concerns me about um, dispensaries um, dictating. You know, they're going to try and do these contract grows, and they're going to you know they'll lowball people, and. It, it's not, um, to my mind, it's backwards. The farmer should set the price of what he's selling, not the dispensary. And by allowing these three organizations to um, operate before anybody else can, that allows them to kind of dictate what the cost is, whether or not they're trying to do a contract grow or cover it any other way that they are. Um. I'm curious, does Oregon uh, have a distinction uh, when it comes to lights? So does it have a distinction between sun-grown and maybe say mixed light or light depth and indoor in its licensing structure at all? Uh, I know some states do, some states don't. Nope, it doesn't. Uh, the Oregon does by canopy size. What you'll find is again, the market will, will, will sort all that out. So, um, you know, we grow light depth you know, we have a we have a, a light depth greenhouse um, that's got uh, you know alternative. We have uh, hid lighting in, inside the greenhouse for days that it's cloudy out. Um, so depending on the the strain that we grow, we either end up in the top shelf or the mid shelf. So it, it essentially equals the same amount of money to us, um, but it it depends on what the variety is and what the what the dispensary is looking for. 
Um, and you know, it's a much more mature market out there. There's a lot more dispensaries out there. So, you know, a lot of dispensaries have tons of mid grade and they, they're looking for high grade or lots of dispensaries have, you know, five or six different kinds of high grade and they're, you know, they're looking for, you know, bottom shelf or outdoor. Um, now most of the dispensaries grow their own outdoor, but you know, it's, there's, you know, there's three or four different tiers out there. And that's, that's kind of how I see things working in Vermont. So uh, I'm curious, does, um, does Lion Root um, grow, do you guys have like a rotating menu? Is it kind of like, I'm thinking about a brewery, you know, and also like what people can expect in Vermont. Food, um, food. Right. Yeah, no, so we have staples. Um, yep. Like I said, we grow medically significant strains. So we're looking for, you know, there's tons of people out there that are getting John Q. Public High. Um, we'd much rather get people that um, get them some strains that that'll actually do them some well. So a lot of people can't sleep. Uh, you know, you wake up two o'clock in the morning to go to the bathroom, and you come back, and next thing you know, you're you know doing emails or something. So you know, we do the nine pound hammer, which you know stops that amygdala reaction and and puts you back to sleep. Um, you know, the Cinex, and a lot of people suffer from headaches right now. The Cinex is a great strain to help you, you know, help reduce that inflammation and help reduce headaches. So. <clears throat> Those are our staples. Um, we are a boutique grow, so we don't do any of our veg, uh, or we do very little veg by ourselves. Um, we'll go in and buy the bulk of our um, our crop. So we'll do you know forty or sixty plants of our own, and then we'll go buy another hand, another hundred plants from or one hundred twenty plants from um, one of the clone providers out west, um, and they have you know menus. Uh, we've been using Capricorn, and They've got a whole you know, menu of different strains that are available. Um, we've had really good um, interactions with them. We've had really good luck with them. The, the, the clones that they've provided have been wonderful. Nice clean starts. Exactly. Yeah, no, no bugs, no anything. Healthy, 8 to 10 inch root bound. You know, just, just, a nice, just a nice start. And what's routine for you guys uh, for IPM? Uh, you know, without divulging any sort of secret recipes or anything. Uh, so, no, it's and IPM is there's there should never be a secret with IPM. The more information That's people it. know, the better. We're all battling the same the same damn bugs. Um, so, I mean, the biggies, you know, mites. I spray every five days preventatively with um, cleaner green, which is essentially soybean oil, uh, concentrated soybean oil. Um, I add a little, uh, I add a little capsaicin oil, um, and I also add a little, um, a little ivory soap, um, as a surfacant and, you know, sp spider mites, I especially like killing spider mites, um, just because they're such a pain in the ass and the, you know, mites breathe through their exoskeleton. So when you can spray a, um, a surfacant like ivory soap on there, it dries that, you know, like it dries your skin out, it dries their shell out. And then you put the little the capsaicin oil in there and it agitates them, it makes them exercise. So they get all popped up, but they can't breathe because their shell's all dried out. So um, you do that and then the, the oil kind of kills the eggs. So um, that's kind of my biggie. That's the only thing we spray regularly. Um, we just had a fungus gnat um, outbreak. Um, they're generally pretty easy. Neem oil. Uh, we use a thing called mosquito bits. 
which have a, uh, a beneficial microorganism in them and you, you just drop it on the soil and water them in. Um, our biggest IPM or our biggest thing is to keep your rooms clean. Mm. Don't let debris on the floor, sweep up, vacuum up. You know, when, when I'm done this conversation, I'm gonna spend 45 minutes vacuuming our main grow room, getting every leaf up, like all that. It just, it needs to be done, you know, three, four times a week, you know, cause you're growing plants and especially on an indoor operation where, you know, it's indoors, like it, the dirt builds up fast. So you need to make sure that you just, you know, stay on top of it. Awesome. Um, so we are uh, sort of, uh, we'll keep the conversation going, um, but I just want to uh, take a moment and say that uh, uh, we are approaching 745-ish. So uh, if anyone has any questions, uh, uh, Jenny will be uh, moderating everybody, moderating everybody, but uh, please feel free to raise your hand uh, or use the chat uh, if you don't want to talk. Uh, but uh, you guys, uh, we will let you speak if you wish. Uh, and also uh, just um, share any uh any questions through chat alternatively? Um, it looks like we may have one from, let's see here. We do have someone who has uh, their hand raised. So why don't we call on Danny? Um, let's see here. All right, uh, Danny, are you there with us, with Joe and I? Yeah, okay, I think I'm unmuted now. All right, yeah. question for us. Joe, it's such a great talk you're giving. This is really fantastic. Um, I am very interested in the medicinal end of what you're doing. Um, I got a professional certificate from the UVM Cannabis Science and Medicine program. And um, I uh, have been making some really great uh, oils uh, that, that are very therapeutic. Um, and I'm incredibly interested in uh, the different uh, aspects, like you were talking about Synex you know, for reducing headaches and the nine pound hammer for sleep. That's what I want to do is come up with a, a, a line of, of different uh, medicines. And I was wondering how, how I could, you know, do this. How can I make, how can, heck, how can these become available to me so I can uh, create medicine with that? Um, I would say it's a multi-step process, like either, acquire some of those said strains now what what are you what um are you making tinctures are you making edibles like what is it that you're what is it that you're making as your end, end product yeah i'm using mct oil right now and and i'm also very interested in in uh, making tinctures as well right. so what i would say is um i would i would acquire those genetics um and once you have them the The problem with uh, breaking it down into any type of oil or concentrating it is that you end up losing, excuse me, a lot of the terpenes and a lot of the flavonoids and the theols. And they're all, because you know, they're so volatile. So, but they're critical to the actual entourage effect that you get from, from the nine pound hammer. So the way that, the, the best way that I would, would describe going about it is, I would get some nine pound hammer. I would have it analyzed. And I don't mean just the cannabinoid profile, but the terpene profile more importantly. Um, and if you can get the flavonoids, a lot of people don't do them, but if you can get the flavonoids and the, the theol profile and the theols are just like a terpene, um, the theol just has a sulfur molecule at the end of it. Um, it's what makes cannabis smell like uh, dank. 
makes it smell like ass or gas or just dank. Um, but if you can get that profile, because as you concentrate it into an oil, you're going to lose some of that, that terpene and some of those theols. And what you need to do is reintroduce them back into your mixture to give you that full entourage effect. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. Would, would you lose those uh, theols and terpenes uh, uh, if you're making a tincture? Or is that if you're making anything, if they're exposed to air, they get, you know, it's a, the, the, a, a terpene, in, you know, the end of the molecule has the hydrogen, you know, has a hydrogen molecule on the end of it. So, you know, the hydrogen molecules, you know, it's, it's, it's the slut of the molecule world. You know, if it's something's more attractive, that's where it's going. It's just going to bounce off and go to there. So it's very, um, it's very volatile. So you're going to lose that no matter, you know, if you just expose it to air, you're going to slowly lose those, those terpenes and the theols. Not the theols, not so much, but the terpenes for sure. So when we used to make, um, when we used to make uh, cartridges back in the couple of years ago, um, we would take them to the lab and we would have, we'd have them do, run the full terp profile. And then once they did it, they'd say, okay, we lost, you know, 10% of this and 14% of this, 30% of this. And then they'd go ahead and, um, and re-add that. And you'd get the, you'd get the, the, the full, not only the entourage effect, but the full flavor of what you're, what you originally started with. Wow. Okay. This sounds, um, quite, uh, involved. I was wondering, uh, would it be possible to get a consultation with you about this? A absolutely. I would, I would say is reach out to, uh, seven leaf genetics. Um, there's a, we have like a, you know, an email thing that says, you know, purpose, and then just ask us a couple of questions, leave your uh, contact info and I'll, I'll reach out. Okay. Great, Joe. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Just to touch upon that, it's, it sounds like you guys, uh, maybe what Danny uh, was referring to and what you had picked up on, um, Joe, was, you know, the differences between um, concentrates that are maybe full spectrum, broad spectrum, or ones that are fractured at the molecular level and then sort of uh, right reassembled. Re yeah, reconstituted. Yep. I mean, everything's going to be reconstituted if you're the, – those uh, – those terpenes are, are so volatile that if you do any type of extraction, you're going to lose a good chunk of them. So you need to really um, pay attention to what you have and then reincorporate them. You know, limoline comes from, you know, it comes from lavender. You know, it's, it's not like the, um, the terpenes are hard to find. They're, they're easy. They're in all over, you know, they're all over, um, you know, in all over the plant world. What's one example? Limoline, um, uh, lemons, lemons, oranges. You know, any any plant that has a smell. You know, if it smells bad, it's a theol. If it smells good, it's a terpene. Yo, staying staying on terpenes, we have a, a great question from Sam. Uh, Sam, thanks yeah. for chiming in from chat. He asks, "What kind of terpene profiles do you look for, Joe?" Uh, and let's stick with cannabis for a moment and talk about hemp as well if you want to, but I'm curious for high THC. Um, so what I'm looking for or is a good, um, I'm looking for depth, right? I don't want a lot of the strains that are out there now, they're, you know, bury this or cookies that, or, 
you know, gelato. And it's just all sweet. It's all the, it's all those sweet terpenes. There's no depth to it. So to my mind, what I'd like to do is have something that, you know, has a little dank to it, but has some sweetness to it. Right? Like I'm growing this, this pineapple jet fuel. <clears throat> pineapple has this, you know, sweet mango-y kind of citrus type flavor to it, but it's also got the gas from, you know, cause the jet fuel, you know, it's so the OG jet fuel. So those are the kind of mixtures that I'm looking for. That's not just one note. I mean, you know, the, the berries and the, the, the cookies and all the sweets were the big deal out West, you know, five or six years ago, they're the big deal out on the East coast right now. Um, they're, they're nice if they're combined with something else. But to my mind, that they're they're a one note one note wonder. Put a little oh. Bruce Banner with some, you know, with some with, with some GG four, you know, and give yourself two different types of dank, you know, the stank and the dank. <laughs> so when you search for terpene profile, and I think you may have touched upon this earlier. Uh, is it more than just flavor? Is it also action, right? Because that's where some of the medicinal. Well, it is. It, it, they work with, um, you know, they work with the cannabinoids. So, you know, we grow we grow a strain called the Holy Grail OG, and great strain. It, it great strain, and it just it mellows you out. It takes you down a notch. It brings you off the lot. You know, brings you off the edge. So one of the reasons that I think that it does that so well is it has you know, this wonderful sandalwood taste and it has all these terpenes in it that are, that are known to relax you. So it's working with a high CBC content, not so high of a THC content, a relatively high CBD content. And then the terpene profile kind of matches that exactly. And that's how you get a truly, you know, medical strain is something that's both, you know, is, is working all the way around. That was a very informative answer. Thank you. Thank you. Um, shifting gears a little bit. Looks like we've got one from Phil. Uh, Phil is asking through chat. Uh, I'm just beginning to explore home growing. My first attempt was less successful than I had hoped. Any suggestions on how to begin a small home grow? I should say I live in Vermont. And I just want to say, feel free to raise your hand if you guys want to chime in yourself. Uh, we will uh, allow you guys to speak. Great. So, so home yep. growing. So Phil, would, I would say is um, two things. Always pay attention to the trilogy. And the trilogy is your lighting, your nutrients, and your genetics. Um, don't grow, if you've got a small space, don't grow a plant that's going to be eight feet tall. You're going to have a, a bad experience with it. Um, <clears throat> fertilizers, keep it simple. Um, MPK. Make sure they get the cow mag when you initiate flowering. Um, lots of potash towards the end, but you don't need to. Uh, you can, but you don't need to go crazy with adding humic acids and aminos and this, that, and the other. Um, what you end up doing is throwing something out of balance um, and running into problems. So if you're just starting out, I would say just keep it real simple. Um, the other thing is light. Um, the more light, the better but the further away, the better. You don't want something that's just hammering, you know, an inch above your, a, a bit, an inch above your plants. Um, you'll start, you'll start cooking your leaves. 
So those are the three things. That's the trilogy that you want to pay attention to. Um, the other thing that I would say is your plant to love ratio. Um, and just know that the more time you spend with your plants, the better, uh, the more love you give them, the better they're going to turn out for you. So, um, you know, that's not to say, and I say this all the time, especially to growers that are just getting into it, um, you know, or scaling up, I should say, is that one of the hardest things is to not touch your plants all the time. You know, my, the lights turn on, the plants are growing, let them do what they're supposed to do. Um, you don't need to touch every leaf every day. Um, so I would say to pay attention to those, keep your fertilizer regime as, um, as simple as possible, buy the right genetics for the space that you have, um, and know that your first few attempts are gonna be more of, are gonna be experimental. You know, you're gonna, um, you're gonna make some, some mistakes and, you know, run into it, but just keep going with it. Um, yeah, I find it fun. Great advice. I, I want to say definitely it can be it can be intimidating, but it's also accessible, right? And, and I think that's fantastic advice, Joe. If you keep things simple, it's a really great way to ease into it as well. You know, you don't need to do what you know all of your friends are doing, buying products. You you don't need to buy yourself into necessarily I, a fantastic crop, right? So to I used to my, one of my grow partners back like back in the day. He we go to Green Thumb Gardening, you know every month to go get some, you know, to re-up on the fertilizer that we bought last time. By the way, love the local grow shops, right? Love yeah, the local oh, Rick, Rick is a staple. Like he, <laughs> that man needs to be praised. Um, I don't know any grower from, you know, I mean, I've been doing this since 89 up here and he was available then um, and available with good information He'd rewire a ballast for you. Um, yeah, he was he was legit. Um, he, he's a great guy. And that cornucopia is a wonderful fertilizer that he does. So um, I like Rick a lot. He's someone that, um, again, you know, a lot of these small growers, um, I think that my biggest concern is that there's a lot of small growers out there that are going to try and scale up and there's a big difference between growing a dozen plants under 4,000 watts in your basement and growing 92 plants under 42,000 watts in 1,200 square feet. It's a whole new game. And that's my one of my biggest worries is, or one of the biggest things that I've seen is people struggling to scale up and get the, the quality that they're looking for, the quality that they're used to. Um, from those larger grows. That's interesting. Um, what is that threshold, would you say? So I'll give you an example. Let's let's talk about some realities that maybe some Vermonters are thinking of. We've got that craft cultivation license. That's yep. a thousand square feet. Would you consider that small scale, large scale, thousand square feet? I mean, that's not that it big. Is. So that thousand square feet was... Um, I I fought for that because they wanted to keep it at 400 square feet. And 500, about 500 square feet. And I came in with to the governor's cannabis council with a spreadsheet and explained to him, you know, one of the biggest things or one of the misnomers in this industry is, you know, people think, oh my God, he's growing weed. He's, they're making millions. And that's just simply not the case. So at a 500 square foot grow, 
after expenses, after all the regulatory bullshit and everything else you go through, you're looking at making maybe thirty, forty thousand dollars a year. That's barely enough for someone to live on. So what I said was expand it to fifteen hundred square feet, you know, and let someone, you know, let a craft grower actually, you know, that's not so big that you can't put a greenhouse in your backyard. Um, but it's big enough that you can, you know, make a living at it, you know, make a decent living at it. Um, the thousand square feet, I think, is is a decent compromise. Um, <clears throat> again, what I tell people is to keep it simple in the beginning. The less complicated you can keep things, and let's face it, we can make this as complicated as we absolutely want to. I mean, I, you can go nuts with it um there's just no need you can grow a really good product um just doing the basics and i think that if you're a new grower especially one that's expanding out you start with the basics and then you build out from there because once you're successful with the basics then you're much more confident adding this or that or the other so we have uh <laughs> Let's see here. We have an interesting question. I don't know, uh, Joe. You f uh, feel free to, uh, if you see the Q and A icon at the bottom of your screen. Oh we, yeah. We have a question there. Um, thank you, uh, Victoria, for this very thoughtful question. Um, and it really pertains to accessibility of quality medication. Um, you know, uh, Victoria directly asks. Mm -hmm. uh, you know. Is Vermont doing anything uh, right now uh, to help the situation uh, which we currently have, which is uh, we've got dispensaries that uh, pretty much control the product for the medical scene. Uh, we're not like other states like Maine, for instance, where our caregivers can grow for multiple patients. We're more restricted. Uh, so most people, most patients get their products from uh, dispensaries if they're to buy from someone. Uh, those are the only providers. Uh, and they don't have the best reputation. I believe there were Vermont Digger articles in the past that have uh, oh, yeah. reporting on mold and Victoria mentions that. Um, what can be done? Uh, that's interesting. Um, Unfortunately, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I didn't finish your question. Uh, well, first of all, Joe, are you seeing that in the Q&A? I, I am. Yeah, I'm reading yeah. through it. No, so I, would say, I would say that, you know, it, we're talking about, I would say, and Joe, I'll let you fill in the fill it in, uh, medical reform. So we talked about the rec market a little bit. Um, but, you know, I think that Vermont could use some reformations to its medical space. Well, to my mind, isn't the medical just getting folded into the rec? In Act 164, yes, uh, there's multiple effective dates, and one of the effective dates, I believe it is in March of next year, is the VMR does collapse under the guise of the CCB, and of course, uh, that is to be determined, so they haven't right, uh, written yeah. the new medical law. They and basically you can, are pushing you can, Yeah, you can, and you can full well expect the full-on press from the dispensary owners to uh, to postpone that as long as possible. Absolutely. Um, Any relief for Victoria? Victoria, that's interesting. Um, well, let's just say I hope Victoria comes home soon. And um, I think that I don't like 164. I didn't like S54. Um, to my mind, it did the 
the wrong things and made the same mistakes that we saw out West um, that we're just going to have to go through again, because that is, that's the starting block that we're at. Um, so it's going to be incumbent upon us to make the changes that we want um, to see in the market. One of the ways that we can do that is to call substandard product out as soon as we see it. Um, unfortunately, the legislature has allowed these dispensaries to kind of manage their own stock. So they're the ones that are doing the testing. They're the ones that are, uh, you know, telling us how good their product is. So to my mind, any system where, you know, the, the foxes guard in the hen house is, is you know, suspect. There's, there's no, you know, in Oregon and every other state out West, there is an independent third party testing, hmm. independent third party testing. Um, and that's the way it should be. Um, you know, the way that it's set up now, I wouldn't go anywhere near a medical dispensary, like one of our three medical dispensaries. Um, I go, I go near one of them. Um, but I wouldn't just because I know who the grower is. Um, and she, she does a really good job, but, uh, I really think that the, the dispensary owners are one of the problems with the dispensaries, the, the current dispensaries is that they were allowed to hold on to these licenses, but they weren't allowed to make any money. So what that did was that set them up to just kind of hold on to these industry, hold on to these businesses until we did get till we did open up a rec market. And then what they, these businesses would be valuable and they could sell them for a profit. And that's essentially what, to my mind is what's going on right now. So um, the sooner we can get independent dispensaries in that are working with um, not contract growers, but just you know actual growers that are growing it and are able to sell into the sell into the system, um, the better off we'll be and the better the, the closer we'll be to making the market that we we all want. That's a, that's a great answer, and I will say that you know. I'll just share from an organizational perspective. Um, there's like a couple things that uh, we are working on in terms of uh, our coalition with NILFA and Rural Vermont and um, Justice for All and the Racial Justice Alliance, all of these fantastic Vermont organizations that we're humbled to be working with. They, you know, they are interested in things like, um, I'll give you an example, Act 164 uh, increases effectively law enforcement in the medical space. Uh, not only do you have to pass an FBI background check, but also uh, there's now a requirement of biometrics. So that's one thing that we're looking to reverse is we don't think it's, we don't think it's the appropriate thing to be asking uh, more of, uh, you know, sick Vermonters seeking relief from, you know, to commit themselves to law enforcement, especially at this time when we're trying to, you know, nationally maybe reform policing. Um, right. should, I don't, we don't, we don't think we should be putting up barriers for something like that. Um, but that's just one example. Um, and it's really unfortunate that we saw that in, in this legislation. Um, we agree with you, Joe, I think, uh, it's not a great foundation. Uh, it's what we have. And, uh, we just need to, you know, move forward and try and uh, fix as many things as possible. Exactly. And, and we can and we should look to we, we should look to the states that are doing it, doing it right. There's no one state that's doing it all right. Um, there just isn't, you know, Oregon, where we operate, they, they 
excuse me, they licensed too many growers. So in 20, 2020, yeah, last year, or th yep. this year, um, the beginning of this year, they put a moratorium on any more grow licenses for the next three years. So until 2024, you cannot even get a grow license out west right now in Oregon. So, you know, those are some of the issues that, you know, we went back and forth with Vermont. How big is, it's a small state to my mind and, you know, my libertarian slant. I want to see, you know, we sh the state shouldn't be setting criteria as to how many growers should be doing that. Let the market sort that out. And that's not to say, I mean, this is, there are going to be very good people in this industry that have a very good business plan that are going to fail spectacularly. And there are going to be complete, um, not nice people with a really bad business plan that are going to fail upwardly and they're going to fail upwardly wildly successfully. Uh, it's just, again, it's just like any other industry. So the things that we can do um, and the things that we can kind of put in place or change this law so that the small time grower and all of us that are going to grow at a thousand square feet or 1500 square feet or whatever the number is, um, that they too can make a living. Um, because this industry, you know, both the THC and the hemp side are a, a wonderful opportunity for a lot of people in this state to, um, to make a living. Especially dairy farmers in yep. the hemp industry. I was going to just ask about Oregon again. You had mentioned the, the moratorium or the, the injunction that right the, the state yep. legislature put on licensing. I have a question about that. So yep. in Vermont, we're rolling out one canopy size for cultivation, at least initially, right? That cracked cultivation tier we just mentioned about yep. square feet. When Oregon rolled out, now I'm talking initial rollout, did they have unlimited, multiple? Unlimited everything. Did they have multiple tiers to cultivation? Was it one? It did. No, there was, I, I want to say there was four. There was like a micro one and a micro two and a macro one and a macro two. And I want to say the macro two was like 50,000 square feet and above. And macro one was like 10,000 feet, 10,000 up to 50. And then the micros were like 5,000 to 10 and then under 5,000. Now, not to bounce around, but to bring that back to Vermont and speaking of like craft, you know, when we think of Vermont, we don't compete in commodity. It doesn't really matter what it is. You know, we don't have right. any countries here. Um, we know that, right? Artisanal, most things, you know, people, hence destination breweries and things like that. People come to us, right? This, this entire industry should be based or designed around the craft brewery industry. So that mm -hmm. being said, you know, what, is there a threshold for craft in your mind? Can you grow 20,000 square feet? Can you grow 10,000 square feet and still have craft cannabis? What is that? Is there, what you is can that? grow 20,000 square feet and still call it craft. Again, it comes down to that plant to love ratio, right? So as you get bigger, you start to automate things, right? So at 20,000 square feet, you're going to have an automated drip system that's going to feed everything, right? You're going to have, you know, a, a docinator, if you will, or dosatron, excuse me, um, that's going to feed everything. And it's going to read the plants and it's going to do exactly what it's supposed to. You're going to have automated light system. You're going to have automated mister systems. You're going to have all this automation. That's what takes it away from the craft. When you do, you know, a living soil system and you stake all your plants and you're hand watering, 
that's more of a craft grow than there. I can't say, you know, you can do 20,000 square feet, have 10 people mm -hmm. at, at 10 hours a day and really give them the plant to love ratio that um, would would dictate what a craft grow is, like to give you that quality. You said plant um, to love? I'm sorry, what was that? You said plant to love? The plant to love ratio. Oh, I love that. You hippie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the plant to love ratio. The more the more love you give your plants, the better your plants are gonna are gonna produce. The better they're gonna look, the better they're gonna smell, the better they're gonna be. I'm stealing it. Yeah, they please do. Plant to love ratio. All right. Well, uh, as we sort of wrap it up here, please uh, any sort of last questions, feel free to raise your hand. We've got a couple more minutes here as we come up on sort of eight fifteen, but. Uh, Gee, uh, I think, uh, you know, this was fantastic. Um, you know, I think that we could have gone on for at least another, you know, 30 minutes or so. <laughs> oh, easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just get me going. <laughs> well, I don't know about you, um, but I'm certainly excited for where Vermont's headed. Uh, I don't know if you heard everybody, but uh, New Jersey just uh, passed something today. Yeah, they did. I'm really yeah. excited about the Jersey. Uh, Are we, that's right. We're both from Jersey, right, Joe? Yep. There you go. No, I'm really, I, I'm really excited about Jersey going legal. Um, yeah. And I'm glad they passed both um, legalization for the people. So possession and things like that are. Uh, it's gone you know, away. Well, it's, it's not gone away. It's a civil fine. Exactly. But, uh, but and it wasn't just, it wasn't. Huh. Just. And it's, it's Jersey too. So it's probably like 200 bucks, but. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, but, you know, and, you know, in it, whether or not we, you know, we change, you know, Act 164, like you said, there's a lot of talent in the state. We will, we will move there eventually. It's just a matter of when, for the most part, you know, uh, how, how rocky it is, you know. It, it's a, it's a when and how we want to dictate it. You know, the, to my mind, if that space, when the three medical dispensaries have the opportunity to shine, if they fail miserably, then that makes our case for the system that we want that much more palatable. And so that's a, that's a fantastic point. That's a fantastic point. No, granted, they've had the entire time, you know, uh, the medical. Yeah, and, and, and they've, done nothing but step, <laughs> they've done nothing but step on their crank the entire yeah. time. But you're right. Uh, you know, they'll be competing with other people now, right? Eventually, eventually. So, yeah. So let's just make sure, let's make sure, guys, that it's an even playing field, right? And not slanted towards them. That's it. Excellent. Excellent. Well, this awesome. was fantastic. Um, just a couple of teases before we sort of wrap it up. I just want to mention that our annual policy survey uh, will be will be uh, released, published next week. So we look forward to that. Uh, that's something that we do annually uh, as the uh, trade association uh, in Vermont. Uh, we started this last year. Uh, this is the second time we're doing this. We're gonna be doing this every year. This is a public survey uh, where we collect everyone's opinions on not just sort of consumer focused, but also business focused uh, questions. Uh, and we're a grassroots organization, so it's very important what what uh, those of you uh, think out there um, at all at all corners of the uh, the industry, the emerging industry, 
And also, uh, we will be holding uh, uh, episode three of Crap First in January. Uh, we'll have more info on that soon. Uh, but that will be a panel discussion about specifically Act 164 and also Act 167. Uh, for those of you, uh, Act 167 is S234, which was the expungement bill. Uh, so we'll be covering both the expungement bill and then also the tax taxation and regulation bill uh, as a sort of community discussion uh, with some coalition members in, in January. Uh, and we'll be picking up uh, this cultivation corner uh, once a month. Uh, we'll have uh, another one in January and February and so on. And uh, we'll be announcing those in the future as well. And this was, this was, this was, this was a pleasure. We got to have you back on Joe, seriously. You got to be like uh, the first one who, who comes back on and does like a repeat. Okay. You cool with that? Oh yeah, it sounds good. Let, 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 let's let let let's unwind one sixty four first a little bit and uh, see what our gripes are. Yeah, truly, truly. Um, well, we'll we'll put this up on Apple Podcasts and everything else where you guys can access this on our website uh, in the coming days. Uh, thank you very much, Joe. Awesome. Thank uh, you, and thank you everybody for participating. Really enjoyed it. All right, everybody. Have a nice weekend. You as well. I'm gonna go play with my plans. Take care, everybody.